Well, good morning, church. We're so thankful to have you with us here this morning. At first, as Aaron mentioned, we, we've just actually finished a 28-week series on Acts. Crazy to think that we are done with that. And, and, and throughout the Advent season, we're, we're hitting on four different of these key ingredients. And the first we're starting with is arguably the most important, and it is the ingredient of love. And it being Christmas season, it's officially that time of year where we're in the middle of endless holiday Hallmark movies, uh, just in, in repeat, and everyone is consuming them uh, throughout the day and throughout their nights. And uh, any of you guys, Hallmark movie fans, uh, show of hands? Okay. Oh, yeah, I've got some uh, energy there. Um, confession, I am not. Uh, I respect those who are, uh, but I, I, I am really not. Personally, I like movies that surprise me. And Hallmark movies follow the same script most of the time, end in a happy ending. So I'm just not as much of a a fan. And just to kind of like, here's a collage of of all of the diversity of Hallmark movies where they dress very similarly and and pose the same ways. And um, so it's crazy. Uh, and the thing is, uh, these, most of these, the average Hallmark movie takes about two, two weeks to shoot and only costs about $2 million, um, but they rake in uh, hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of the holidays. So really, we're being duped whenever we, we watch this, but we don't care. Uh, it's something that psychologists say, it, it's, it's the, the stress of the holidays is released in the, in the whole Hallmark movie watching experience of knowing what, what's going to happen, that's going to end happy. And I guess, although I, some ladies stopped me afterwards, uh, the first service and said, well, this year's a little bit different. There's a little more, you know, you know I don't know. So check it out, I guess. Um, I probably won't, but... Um, but, but we need to ask, why, why are we sucked in to, to these kinds of things? You know, whether it's Hallmark movies or whatever else it is, these happy endings. These, it's oftentimes love stories of belonging and family and that kind of thing. And, and it's a simple answer. It's a cliche answer. But, but it's because we're all looking for love. We're all looking for love. We want that connection, that, that meaning, purpose, family, belonging. And, and unless we have it. Something is missing. There's an empty piece in our lives. All, all humans, to some degree, can agree on that. We, we want love. We long for it. It's as if we're designed for it. And so as we start this series uh, throughout Advent, and as we dive into the topic of love, one of the things, there'll just be a theme throughout this morning, is that Jesus is the example of God's love. We're looking for love Spoiler alert, it's going to be found in Jesus. But we're going to start, just the, the theme verse for this series is actually just short and sweet. In uh, Isaiah seven fourteen, it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And this is a prophecy from Isaiah 700 plus years before the time of Jesus. It's the same prophecy that's mentioned in the first chapter of Matthew where he, he says the same exact thing, but then he adds on that Emmanuel means God with us. And, and, and really in this verse and, and in this idea of, of love, we see the reality that God wants to be with us. He's always wanted to be with us. 700 years before Jesus, he was planning to be with us. And, and it's even crazier than that. The reality is that before the creation of the universe, God wanted to be with us. 
You know, it's in Christmas time. We're all give, giving gifts, making lists. Another confession. There's lots of confessions this morning. I haven't even made my list yet. I need to do it this week because my family members are asking for it. It's like, oh my goodness. And I just, I'm kind of picky, and it takes time and that kind of thing. Um, but really, all I really want most of the time is, is just for a thoughtful gift. Doesn't have to be crazy. Doesn't have to be expensive. It could be a one or two dollar thing from the thrift shop. But but is it thoughtful? Does it is it someone who knows me and knows something that I love or an inside joke or something? It's like, oh, I know Sam was going to love this. I'm going to snag that. This is the thoughtfulness. And, and and if we're honest, we would all love to to be in the mind of someone else, to be thought of, to be contemplated. And the reality is that God has thought of us from the foundations of time, known us, wanted us, loved us. From Eden, God's desire was to be with us. And it's overwhelming to think that the God, the creator of the universe, wants to dwell with us, but it's true. Who are we that God should be mindful of us? And this mindfulness comes with the promise of Jesus Christ as the reflection of God's love. But we're, we're missing one significant part of the story. It's, it's, it, yes, it is a story ultimately of God with us, wanting to be with us. His love longs for us. But there's something else. Every year, you know, this time of year, there's these, these uh, catchy sayings and, you know, I'll apologize in advance if your eyes get stuck in the back of, of your head. Um, but, but here's one, here's, you know, uh, Christmas isn't a season, it's a, it's, it's a feeling. Christmas isn't a season, it's, it's a feeling. Oh, how nice. Um, this Christmas, give the gift of presents. Presence with an N-C-E and not an N-T-S, you know? A little bit of a, it's like a dad joke light, so, you know, I, I enjoy that. Um, and this one, this is the one probably, uh, maybe the most cliche, the one I think of, you know, first. Jesus is the reason for the season. Aw. Uh, and that's true. I, it is true. I mean, to some degree. But, but it misses one part of the truth. And I think the reality we need to hear, that it's hard, it's, it's heavy, but the truth is the reason for the season is sin. The reason for the season is actually sin. We live in a world that is enslaved to this thing called sin, a world that has been given over to darkness, a world in which we, humanity, all of us in our rebellion, in our pride, brokenness, we gave what God gave to us, dominion and authority and responsibility. We gave it over in sinfulness to the kingdom of darkness, Satan, sin, and death. We see it all around us, within and without, wars, genocides, homicides. Suicides, betrayal, divorce, deceit, addiction, abandonment, it is with us, globally and personally. And it's heavy. It is the human condition, it is the disease that we carry. It was there 2,000 years before Christ and it's there 2,000 years after him. But it is in that condition that love meets us. 
All the while, God planned to be with us, to come as a baby because he knew that we would need him to. He knew the price of creating us, the risk. He knew we would fail. We would fail our responsibility, the task that he assigned us to be his image bearers. And he knew the occasion for the incarnation would mean to come to rescue, save, and heal us, the world, from sin. He knew what it would cost. He knew the cost to himself. And he chose us anyway, out of love. The reason for the season is sin. God sent his son because of his love. And this truth comes into clarity and focus through the the powerful, profound kind of verses that we hear often quoted. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or in Romans 5, 6 through 8, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came. He put on flesh. As Philippians 2 says, he took on the form of a servant, of a slave. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He was resurrected and exalted. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And his kingdom has now come. The now and not yet kingdom that pushes back the darkness. That we are invited into as his people. And that we work, we partner, participate in that kingdom. Until... The age to come finds fulfillment and all things are fully made right. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's love for us. And this all, of course, is is good news. It's great news. It is the gospel. But like so many things that we hear and that we, we know in the Christian faith, we don't necessarily know them experience them as true in the depths of our being, not just with feelings and and thoughts, but the, the whole of our being that we know relationally, experientially, these things are true. That they actually then take root and change us, transform us. Sometimes that journey from the head to the heart to the hands, that distance is the greatest of all distances. Challenging to keep from the head to the heart. I know it is for me. There's a song by Rich Mullins called The Love of God. He was this prophetic presence at the the end of the last century, this, this beautiful artist, this broken man who knew it, but he was a saint and he loved Jesus. And he wrote this song called The Love of God. The opening lyrics go like this. There's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find in my own. And he keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone. Keeps me aching with a yearning. Keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. Sometimes poetry and song says things that our souls can't express on their own 
And read those last two lines once again. Keeps me aching with a yearning. Keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. We long to be caught up to experience this thing called the love of God, that purpose and belonging rooted in his love, in the immensity and the absurdity of a God who pursues us, who knew us from before time. St. Augustine in the fifth century said it this way, you, you God have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We were made for God, but our hearts are restless wanderers and wanderers. Truth is, unless God's love has captured your heart, it's probably still roaming free. And some of you this morning feel this. You're here, your heart has never truly found rest, never truly found a home. It's searched throughout all the things of the world, but never found lasting satisfaction. And if that's you this morning, I want to say welcome. Welcome. Jesus has something for you this morning. In the love of God, lean in. Some of you know the love of God well. Your very life is centered around it. You've experienced it. You are secure in it. And if that is you, give thanks. Amen, hallelujah. That that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Do not take it for granted. Listen in for the sake of other brothers and sisters who have a different experience. But for some of you, perhaps many of you, myself included, you have a complicated relationship with this thing called the love of of God. Maybe you're saying this morning, Samuel, I've been a Christian for years, I know God, but I feel like there's something missing. There's a depth that I I know is there, but I just can't reach. I I don't know what it's like to live in a constant trust, trust in the love of God. I have seasons and glimpses of this, this deeper reality. But more often than not, the story that I claim to believe doesn't feel real to me. And this has been my story. For the greater part of my life, and especially my adult life, the theme of my faith journey, my experience of of God and his love has been that of absence, of of abandonment, of, of oftentimes forsakenness, of God, where are you? Do you even love me? I, 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 I've known you my whole life, but who are you? Where are you? Who who am I? I felt envious of other Christians who have different stories, who who have this profound connection and experience of God's transforming love. I've always seemed like I'm on the outside looking in, lonely. And I, I could tell you all the things 
the reasons why this could be. I could tell you that maybe it's due to the fact that I grew up in the church. I've always been in the light and I've never known a, a darkness to light kind of story conversion experience. Or perhaps it had something to do with the, the, the felt experience of my earthly father who I love dearly that oftentimes, sometimes it's, there was distance there and I project that onto heavenly father or maybe it was because of certain habitual sins that just, ah, they, you just can't kick them or or maybe it's my tendency to master ideas about God instead of being mastered by the presence of God. And I don't know where you're coming from or what your story is, what the gap between the love of God that you know and the love of God you experienced this morning. It may be different things, different reasons, different things that have got you to this point, but all the things that I listed, and probably more that I'm unaware of, they, they all have one thing in common. They, they change my understanding, my vision of, of the image of who God is. They impact it. And your stories, I guarantee, are similar. A.W. Tozer says that what com comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we see God will shape and form us into the kind of God we see. And that's scary. Or it's incredible. The truth is, no matter how intentionally we're walking with Jesus, if we have an incorrect image of God, we will be severely hindered in our faith. Or when we fix our eyes, on the reality of who God actually is. We are deeply empowered and transformed to be more like him. And too often the view we have is something that culture has given us or experiences have given us or our family has passed on to us. We have these subconscious narratives, understandings, images of, of God that, that we don't even realize. For example, we, we think of God as, as this doting grandparent who's just going to give us whatever we want whenever we, we ask, or a lawnmower parent who's paving the way for us, getting everything out of the way so that we don't experience suffering, or a vending machine God that we can just go to anytime and get whatever we want from them, or the deterministic micromanager who's always hovering over our shoulder with anxiety and saying, hey, oh, I think you, you just went the wrong direction. Now you're outside of my will. There's going to be consequences for that. And it's just this presence of fear and anxiety over our shoulder. Or the, the distant deity, far away, uncaring. The, the demanding judge who's always saying, you did that wrong and you did that wrong. And how dare you get that wrong? And you, ooh, you better watch yourself. Many of us have one or many of these images and many others. It's Christmas season, so the reality is we, we kind of have a blend of these things. What I'm going to call the Santa Claus God. This God keeps a list and checks it twice, trying to find out if we're naughty or nice. Give us a lump of coal. He's, oh, 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 you got off. Oh, here's, oh, here's some coal for you this, this year. He sees you when you, you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's hovering over you. He's, oh, he's micromanaging. He's, oh, you go that, you, oh, you need, oh, you're off track right now. Ooh, buddy, going to be a bad year for you. But, you know, he gives us presents, whatever we want when we're good, like a doting grandparent, vending machine guy. 
Although he, he, he only does that once a year, so he's kind of distant the rest of the year. We all have these amalgamations of our image of God, of who he is. We collect these over the course of our lives, the invitation to repent, to rethink what we thought we knew about God. The question is, will we let our hearts and lives be captured by the God revealed in Scripture in the person of Jesus? The God who 1 John 4 says is love. God is love. What does that mean? Sounds beautiful. Elsewhere in, in, in the writings of John, John 1, 18, he says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus has made God known to us, the God of love. The Greek word in this passage for make known is the word exegel. Greek's hard sometimes. It's a dead language, so who knows? Maybe that's how you say it. Um, it means scholarly. It's, it's when you take, you, you find the meaning out in a text, and you're like, oh, I'm, oh that makes sense. This is, psh, the world blows up, and this is what this text means. That's what the, it means that, that Jesus explains God. Another, another uh, way of saying this in another translation, that Jesus is nearest to the heart of God. When, when God comes and he wants to be with us and he wants to show us his heart, he opens up his chest cavity and Jesus walks out. Jesus is the revelation of the love of God and who the Father is. When you see Jesus, you see the heart of the Father. You see the heart of of God, David Benner says that, that realizing that we have forgotten our story, God sent Jesus as the personification of love. The son came to reveal the character of the father. The son came to bring us back to him, back to love, to remind us what true love really is. And this is good news. Love is God's very essence, his being, his character. It's not an emotion that passes by. It is never in, ending, never changing. We can count on it. God is love. It's not reactionary or dependent on our behavior. He's, he's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He's, the, he's not the kind of God that we would create if we were creating a God. One of the most common objections I, I hear is, when we talk about this God of, of level, can't forget about sin. What about sin? What about God's holiness? God hates sin, right? Yep. Yeah, he does. Like a father who loves his children, he wants to eradicate sin from our lives because he loves us and he wants to be with us and he wants us to flourish as he intended the with God life. And sometimes we're like, oh, God can't stand sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. Spoiler alert, Jesus came in the flesh and became sin. He became our curse. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. And he did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. God loves sinners. He is with sinners. And that is good news for all of us this morning. But deep down, some of us, Many of us still simply don't believe that God could possibly love someone as wretched as ourselves, as sinful 
as ourselves. Oh, you, you don't know what I did. You don't know what I've done, where I've been. In our pride, we place our own understanding over God's declaration of us that we are loved. Sure, sin is a big deal, it is, but God's love is so much greater, so much grander, and so much bigger than any sin that has ever been sinned. And Christ took care of it. In fact, some of us this morning need to hear that, that God doesn't only love you, he, he likes you. He wants you. He delights in you. Our English word love is so, like, we love cinnamon rolls and we love God. Like, that doesn't really, he is quite fond of you. As a parent to a child, we all need to hear that this morning. God loves, longs, delights in you. If this is all actually true, which it is, this is good news. This is good news this Christmas season. And the invitation then is to live it out, to take what slowly seeps from all oh, this beautiful news that's seeping down into our hearts and living it out in our lives. And we often think it starts with our minds, which that's a part of it, but sometimes, and oftentimes, obedience, action, is what awakens our hearts and our minds to the truth of God's goodness and love in our lives. We live it out even if we don't feel like it. Some of you might wonder if I still am in that season of feeling abandoned by God. And I still have moments. But overall, the last three years have been incredibly transformative for me. I, I've, I've, I've felt a burden. I've really given it over to God. The thing that changed is I stopped doing for God and I started just focusing on being with God. Emmanuel, God with us. It starts. We are loved. He is with us. We're invited into that. Sit in it. Rest in it. That's where it starts. And yes, God has a mission and a purpose for us, but it flows out of that love that being, that belovedness. Abiding is what John calls it elsewhere. We're all looking for love. The question is this, will we stop our striving to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look, live in the love of God today, to be with him in that love? Let it transform us. And so to wrap up this morning, I want us to ground us in three things that the love of God does in our, our lives and give just some, some practical things as well. The first thing is that God's love reminds us we are loved. God's love reminds us we are loved. You might say, Sam, you just talked about God's love being, you just talked about this. I'm just reminding you that you are still loved. We have these moments where, where, where we're like, oh, God loves me. And then the next moment, the next minute, the next day, we've, we've forgotten. And the love of God continues to pursue us. We are reminded, we are to remind ourselves of the love of God. 
In 1 John 4, we, we read this, and so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We, we need reminded more than we need instructed. We need to remind ourselves to practice remembrance of, of what God has already said about us. There was never a time when God was not love and there was never a time that God did not love us. And so the simple invitation this week is to wake up in the morning and say, I am deeply loved by God. Before you go to bed at night, I am deeply loved by God. When you eat a meal, instead of praying your normal prayer, I am deeply loved by God. Whenever you have just made an egregious sin against someone, I am deeply loved by God. When you are experiencing celebration and joy that comes with the Christmas season, I am deeply loved by God. You are deeply loved by God. Remind yourself of that truth even when you don't feel like it is true this week. He delights in you. And in loving us and remembering who we are, that we are loved by God, it, it empowers us, it moves us. We cannot help but share that love with others. God's love is meant to be given away. Our cup overflows. Further on in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot uh, love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The primary goal of our life with God is to become slaves to love. That it becomes second nature that we just passively love everyone in every situation we ever come across. It starts with our belovedness and it flows out to others. This is why Jesus says the greatest commandment, the greatest singular commandment is two commandments, love God and love others. And so the second invitation challenge this week, those people, it's holiday season, in the aisles, you know, at the stores, or the family member that annoys you when you, you're, you're waiting to get together and you know they just, they're just a talker and they're just going to tell the stories they're going to hear about their entire year and it's going to take five hours and you're not going to get a word in. Or whatever your encounters, they are also loved by God. They have unsurpassable worth in the eyes of the Father. To declare over them, even if there's hatred in your heart, Lord, I'm going to die to that. I'm going to take that captive and say, this person is also loved by you. This person, you also died for. So maybe that's your invitation to, to give love away. Uh, back in the Gospel of John, thir uh, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. But this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving well, sacrificially, looking to others, turning our gaze away from our selfishness and our inward individualistic tendency in our culture and just looking who we can serve and sacrifice for in the love of God. That's what we're called to. One tangible way to respond to this is with the foster care Christmas party. 
that's this upcoming Saturday. What better way than to come alongside others who are coming alongside children who, who maybe have never heard or they're, they're taking in the, these stories, these images of God that, that, that I, I don't have a family, I'm not loved, I, I don't belong anywhere. How can we support and love those people as they support the, the, these children this Saturday? You can check out details online. We'd love to have you a partner with us in that December 10th. How else is God inviting you to love others this Christmas season? Which brings us to the third way God's love works in us. These are just three ways. There's countless others. But God's love refines what we hold closest. Refines what we hold closest. 1 John 2. We're at lots of John today. It's great. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everyone in the world, the lust... Uh, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The way of the world or the way of love and the way of God. Let's talk about oysters for a minute. Oysters, yeah. Um, I'm not a fan of eating Oysters, I don't know if, I think you can eat oysters. I, anyway, um, just, or they're kind of gross kind of creatures, kind of neat, I guess. You know, God's creation is most of it's neat. But, but they, uh, you know, people think that, you know, it's, I think it's usually told like, oh, when a grain of sand gets inside an oyster, over time it becomes a pearl, which is, is partially true. That actually is partially true. But the, the bigger story is just anything that gets into an oyster, that whether it's sand or a piece of debris or whatever, it, it takes it captive. It says, this is not supposed to be there, and it protects itself against it, and, and it coats it with, and it be, ends up becoming a pearl, a priceless uh, pearl that, that has value. It's beautiful. And this is kind of like it is with us in the world when we focus more on, on Jesus in the world and the, the things of the world are taken captive they are, they are layered with, with beauty that the, the things we are willing to let go of Christ covers with beauty that it becomes a witness to the world One, another image from scripture that the love of God is an all consuming fire, refining fire that, that whatever is not of God will be burnt up and that we, will, we are invited to be, we can submit to this, we can be refined by God, that we be purified in his, his love and his holiness and his goodness and his beauty and that everything that is not of him, the things that, that, that will pass away would be burnt away, that we might be purely made into people who are loved become love and take that into eternity with God. People of love. And so what what are you holding on to that you need to let go of? That you need God to refine you of? What are the worldly things that will pass away that you need to let go? And then the things of eternal value that you need to hold on to. And in the process, we will become beautiful, refined, the love of God. And all of these things find their perfect example, as always, in the person and presence of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be taken or grabbed hold of, but he laid it down sacrificially for us. We're invited to follow his example this Christmas season. You may have noticed, but we have spent a lot of time with 
John this morning, 1 John, the Gospel of John. John is, is amazing. The Apostle John, he, he's known as the beloved disciple, the closest of the inner three to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He's the one who said to, he, he laid his head on Jesus' chest in the upper room, the Last Supper. He's closest to Jesus. He's the one who on the cross, Jesus is like, to, he, he entrusts his mom to John. He's like, John, this is your mother. Take care of her, the beloved disciple. And according to church tradition, he was one of the only apostles who died a natural death of old age. He was not martyred or killed for his faith. And this story I'm about ready to tell, it's, it's from a guy named St. Jerome. He's an early church father. He told a story of John. We don't know if it's true, but it fits. When John got old, he could no longer walk for himself. He would be carried into different churches by his disciples. And, and he went, and in each church, he would just speak only the words, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And, and after hearing this over time, uh, the people would say, well, why is that the only thing you have to, sh to share uh, for, for us? And John's like, because it is the Lord's command, and it is enough. This morning, it is enough this Christmas season if we love one another. We would love the world that out of our belovedness, we would choose to love others. So I leave you with that this morning. Friend, will you choose to love this Christmas season like Jesus?